0: Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Vierman. I'm here with my friend and trustee producer, Max Kerman, as well as our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Guys, this is an episode of Dumb. So we have three topics we're going to talk about today. No guest, just our company. No Raptors either. No Raptor stuff. It was hard. Yeah, to we, we, Yeah, we, we are. It's raptors one of the topics. Topic. I guess we do. Never we're mind. hitting Danny <laughs> Green. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> But, it, but it's not a Raptors thing. It's more of a, a, of a professional athlete, professional actor, professional entertainer. Yeah. A, and there's sort of a, a, a inclination to charge for things like autographs and photos and things like that. Yeah. That's what the story is. It's, yeah. We're not going to go deep on the Raptors. Trust us. We're out of the woods with that, guys. Yeah, so three topics. Guys, like I said, no guests, just the three of us.
1: Well, and I have a movie recommendation. Oh. oh a pop culture thing. Oh, yeah, give it to us. Have you seen the Netflix show When They
2: See Us? Oh, no, but Lauren saw it and said, I need to watch it. It's the best. And she said, yeah, it'll, you know, break your heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good.
1: Yes. It's about the Central Park Five who were, now they're called the Exonerated Five because they're uh, basically coerced into uh, giving confessions. Five, Uh
0: Five kids who spent time in jail. And I feel like it's really going to upset me. It's going to take me a minute to watch that one. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. I I was well aware of the case. Shane actually mentioned it to me yesterday. And I I knew how Trump was intertwined with the the case in the sense because when this did happen, he was a New Yorker. Was it the 80s or 90s? 80s. 80s. Um, Trump sort of really came out strong against these guys. And then even after the DNA exonerated uh, these five young men, Trump wouldn't back down. And then to this day, he won't back off of his sort of stance. Yeah.
2: Like injustice and things like just being so blatantly unfair. Like, and it really upsets me. Like, you, you know, you you saw Selma with me, right? I know, yeah. But this isn't some diamond in the rough either. Like,
1: the, this has been streamed like 27 It'll win all million the times. Like, yeah. it's going to do that thing where they call it a film and it gets nominated for an Oscar. And this, this one kid, his name's Drell Jerome. He's like the best. In fact, he's so good. He's the only one in the series who plays his younger self and his older self. All the other kids Oh, so
2: it's not a documentary. It's it's a, it's a film No, and recreation. I actually
1: wanted to see the documentary. Oh. So I, I turn it on and then it kinda starts off a little cheesy for the first two minutes and I just shut it off. I'm like, No, I gotta see the documentary. Anyway, I end up pursuing the doc, don't find it, but I find an Oprah special that's like really tells a story. Uh-huh. I start watching the Oprah thing for two minutes, but then she starts saying how amazing the series is. So I'm like, Fuck this and go back <laughs> back to the series and it lived up to how good Oprah Said it was, man. So check out Oprah also. Okay, she knows her shit. And then I watch the Oprah thing afterwards. Yeah, I feel
2: like um, we should do like movie recommendations and TV shows, just like off the top. Just in general, I think it's good. Yeah, I saw that movie. That movie, Late Night, the other night.
0: Oh, the Mandy Mandy Kaling Kaling one. I heard that's horrible. Yeah, don't see it. Really? (laughs) Wow, wow. You saw that with Greg? No, I saw it with Matt Furkan. Okay, yeah, my buddy. I saw Rocketman. Oh yeah, you think? I never, I never uh, get to see the films anymore. Go to, go to the theater, mm, theater. Uh, see the pictures. But uh, Danica and the baby were in Hamilton, um, and so I had like a, a weird like window for a matinee. So I, so like a couple Saturdays ago, I went, you went solo. solo. I went solo. Yeah, you know, I love
2: going solo. You know what's interesting about that is um, the same director uh, who finished uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. He didn't start it because Brian Singer started that movie. He also directed Rocket Man. And both you know LGBTQ icons, rock stars from the '70s and '80s, but uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is good times, and it's a pretty feel good. I th- found Rocket Man to be so depressing, like it was very pretty dark for like a big Hollywood movie. And I think it was rated R too, right? It was rated R, yeah. Yeah, and really? I guess Elton John wouldn't have it any other way. He, yeah, he, he's like, I want like what a did lot. Like better, uh, they're both really good. I like them for different reasons, but mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting that this, the direct, the same director did both.
0: I think that the, the, the argument there was that they wanted to do a darker version of Bohemian Rhapsody. But the problem is the three guys in Queen had no interest in doing that. You know, there was the whole thing where Sasha Baron Cohen was supposed to play yeah. Freddie Mercury. Got, they developed the film to a certain point, And the, the whole joke was he told that story on Stern where basically it's like F- Sasha Baron Cohen's like, and then he thinks they're at the end of the movie because Freddie dies. But the rest of the guys in Queen are like, oh, no, that's only halfway. Because then they want to talk about how the band perseveres through the thing. And it's like, <laughs> this is a movie about Freddie, it's not about Queen. But I think ultimately, because they wanted that PG rating on Bohemian Rhapsody to sort of pump the box office, yeah. have it be a good time, sort of paper over the fact that Freddie was homosexual and had, you know, encounters. And they didn't want to go into that sort of like... Too deeply. Too it's, deeply. They, 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 but Freddie
1: doesn't die halfway through, does he? I haven't seen I've never song. seen Bohemian Rhapsody either. Oh, okay. but oh they, you haven't? No, no, he
0: dies kind of at the end. Yeah, okay. but this is what Sasha Baron Cohen was saying that Queen That's had said the, in the pitch yeah, meeting. I get it. Um, So anyway, this was a chance where it was like, no, let's go a hard R. Yeah. Let's show that Elton absolutely had substance abuse problems. You know, like he says off the top, he was a drug addict, he was an alcoholic, and he was a sex addict. Yeah. And then he goes, he goes honestly into those things while also showing the sort of fantastical side of the music and what, mm-hmm. it, what it could do to people. I, th- I thought it was like really well done in that sense. Oh, I thought it was
2: really well done too. And you're right that the Queen guys, you know, they've... They they controlled the narrative and they exactly. wanted it to like you know we're we're selling a musical we will rock you it's like you know they have families and like they want they want to
0: be able to take their kids to the theater probably you know what I mean and, it'll become a stage show yeah. and you want to bring the kid and all that and, and I and I get I get the inclination toward that but I tend personally as like a viewer I lean more toward like give me the i don't know the more raw sort of honest yeah. sort of telling of stuff even though the elton john thing it, it, you know it's more of a fantasy than like a sort of straight up biopic where it's like and then this happened and then this you know it's like his retelling of events through oh the way yeah he it's very
2: them. um psychedelic almost like yeah. yeah it's. did you
0: ever watch the um
2: you know in the cineplex they have the interviews with like the director and stuff and yeah the there's the like trailers. yeah the, the director is hilarious did you ever see what he looked like uh, the director of the movies He's no. just like this Like really kind of Eccentric old British guy Wearing like A really like Dirty looking jacket And he like ha- Doesn't look like He's like bathed In a few weeks <laughs> He's really just Like a funny guy
0: Would you think of uh, Taron uh, I can't remember his last name Egan Eggert Yeah The guy that played Elton John The dude from uh, Kingsman I thought he was really good He was amazing Yeah, yeah. Who, So I didn't see him In Rhapsody but Who was better Him or Remy Malik As uh, Freddy oh, They're both really good I don't know Pick one Max Take a side I kind of think Remy
2: Malik was a little bit. Full. Wow. Well,
1: the the other guy wouldn't commit to losing weight.
0: You mean gaining weight? Gaining
1: weight. <laughs> oh. Right? <laughs> like, he didn't gain any weight. I was just, Mike was saying yeah. that they call him a chubby little man or something. And he's not point, even chubby. At
0: one point, Elton's like, oh, like, how do I become <laughs> a rock star? Like, a chubby ginger, whatever the line is. But, like, that Terran dude, yeah, he looks better than me with his shirt off. And I'm like, wow, well, t- there's a bit of a disconnect there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, and Remy Malik I feel like, had to transform a little bit more because Freddie Mercury has such an interesting look to sure. him. Sure. Don't, don't you just pop in bigger teeth? Stay skinny? <laughs> <laughs> Put a mustache on? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, All right. I was swept away by... Um, Rami Malek had some great interviews for doing press for Bohemian Rhapsody. He was on Fresh Air. And, he, and he's a little over the top. He's a little theater kid, but he's like, so when I got the role, I moved to England. And he talks in this very kind of like pretentious way. He's like, I moved to England and I... And I walked the streets where Rami, where, what's his name? Freddie. <laughs> <Where, laughs> Fred. I walked the streets where Freddie walked, and I, and I made myself a half microphone stand, and I carried it with wherever <laughs> I went. <laughs> and on one hand, I was like, all right, settle down, buddy. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was like, this guy's dedicated to the craft. <laughs> <laughs> this method is amazing. It kind of worked on me. Yeah. So yeah. I thought you were
1: going
0: to say he was kidding. Like, you no, thought no. he was
1: pretentious, but then he's like, oh, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Wow, that's He weird. was
2: totally all about it, hmm. yeah.
0: You gotta respect the dedication to craft.
2: Yeah, and he had never sang or danced before and he like took a lot of singing and dancing lessons. So. They didn't use his voice,
0: did they? No, but I think there's some parts where like he They, they blend. Kinda, yeah, they blended a little to make it real. Bit. But okay. dude in uh Rocket Man does sing all the songs. It's not mm. Elton. Whoa. He's not lip syncing. Yeah. Okay, but speaking of walking the streets of the UK, Max, this yeah. is our segue into our first topic of the day. Yeah, yeah, So, Max, last night, sent out a Vox article. Headline reads, gender stereotypes have been banned from British ads. What does that mean? The UK's advertising regulator gave agencies six months to eliminate stereotypes, and this is brackets, likely to cause harm or serious or widespread offense. Uh, so, essentially... The idea is you can no longer put in a commercial, uh, a classic uh, gender stereotype like I just said. The report was prompted by a series of widely reviled ads in the UK, including those for a protein world weight loss drink marketed with the tagline, are You Beachbody Ready? And a baby formula commercial that showed a girl growing up to be a ballerina and a boy growing up to be a mathematician. Also, Kate Upton's Game of War commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also came after the ASA stepped in to penalize Gucci for unhealthily thin models in a 2016 ad campaign and a more general public feeling of unease about the pernicious effects of advertising, particularly on children.
1: Let's say it's a laundry commercial. Yeah. Can you have a woman in it? like being like?
2: being I
0: think you can
2: do... Uh, gender focused marketing mm-hmm. it just can't be like negative stereotypes right I so the woman in the laundry on. commercial couldn't be in like a bikini <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I think> so. <laughs> all my
0: dirty clothes are being clean right now fellas <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I, you know, it's, it's an interesting question the laundry one uh i don't know do you just lean make having a man do it yeah. I th-
1: that's the way it is. Anyway, like anytime you see a commercial here, there's always like a group of friends and, you know, one's Asian, one's a black guy and mm-hmm. one's a white guy. And then yeah. the man is always like when well, I'm looking after the kids and he's always like in the kitchen mm-hmm. doing something you would typically see the woman do like. Maybe fifty. So, you, so you're ago. saying that it's already uh, happened it's already here happened. in that way, but uh-huh. this, without, without I being regulated. I think this is something
0: different, though. What's interesting about this to me is that it is um, it's being sort of legislated, like it's now it's like a rule. Mm-hmm. So like you know, here you mentioned that uh, you know if you're going to be selling a car or something, you'll have a mixed couple because one that I, I you know for two reasons. One, I think markers have become super savvy because they they know that people. They want to see that because it obviously sort of is the. There's a woke appeal to it, a hundred percent. And like you're just reaching more people, more demographics who might buy your car, and the people who might feel disturbed by seeing a mixed couple aren't the sort of people you want buying your shit anyway. What is interesting about this, like I was saying, is that uh, this is this will now be like legislated, like this is it's it's enforceable, obviously through some sort of. Um, Like, I don't know what the penalties would be from like whatever their version of the CRTC is.
1: Could you have like uh, under this new mandate a commercial with a boy like uh, going through his life and then he becomes a, a, a mathematician? if it doesn't include a girl at all? Is it just the fact that in typical commercial it would be like, here's a boy's dream. Like, I'm going to change the world with, through science. And then the girl's like, I'll change it through dance or being a
0: waitress. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, to your point, yes. I think I, I think you can't do comparative gender stereotypes. So for instance, mm-hmm. like, I wouldn't even think, oh, all mathematicians are boys. But when you juxtapose it to a girl being a ballerina, then you go, oh, wait, that's, that's weird. Why not make the girl the mathematician? And the boy a dancer, or whatever, or flip the stereotypes. I mean, yeah, I mean it, it is subjective. And it gets to the idea too: like, what are stereotypes in general? Mm-hmm. Usually there is some sort of basis. So like I, I, I think about this constantly. Like, so like um, you know, if 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 girls play with dolls and boys wanna throw a baseball around, let's say, which is like a typical stereotype, the question is. Is that what they're naturally inclined to do, or do they do it because they see it everywhere? So, like, if you're a little girl, and from the minute you're like, you know, two years old, you're watching Disney movies where the princess. Has to fall in love With the prince mm. So you're conditioned To sort of so think a, certain a nice way. dress Exactly yeah. So then So then it sort of like Breeds this whole Sort of like generation Of young girls Who think that way It's like oh I need To get a husband Or I need to find my prince Or if you're like If, if you're if you a young boy It's like oh You grew up watching Hockey with your dad So you're mm-hmm. like I have to watch hockey Or I gotta be like Masculine Sort of these things That are Are they inherent Or are they learned Yeah I mean I think
2: There's science that says That like girls and boys have like are Dispositionally like uh, will often go to one direction or another on average of course uh and i think that's oh that's totally fine that like boys and girls often have different set of interests on average but also then the, the big question is like are we nudging them in a way and i and i'm always really interested in like how culture nudges uh, different groups and what government's can do about it. And this is kind of what we're talking about yeah. right now. When we're talking about like how involved does a government get in other people's life? And I think and I'm always super interested and you and you can go through it's like, you know, seatbelts in cars or smoking inside. It's like those are things that governments have done to that go you know, we're we're taking some of the control out of the market or the like the free market. We're not allowing the free market just to sort of like decide what's best. We're actually going to intervene and we're going to say no this is actually causing a greater harm and we need to set some rules in place and that's i think what's happening with this with with this uh these new ad rules in in the UK and i and I, anyway i just i and i'm i'm i kind of like this experiment cuz i'm kind of interested to see what the results are so not to say that like i totally know it's going to like make a better difference for a bunch of you know, for young men and women who are viewing these ads but i Am curious to know what the effects are in ten years if they do actually make
0: a difference. Yeah, see what what I find interesting though is that <clears throat> something like say smoking in buildings or seatbelts, that feels objective that feels like um well obviously if you don't wear a seat it can be harmful and we've proven that smoking is is, is harmful in health way this feels subjective well but, i think it's objective in as much that, that you you
2: talk about rate rates of depression and anxiety amongst young people like th- those those are real objective facts that are going so through the so our right society
0: now. contributes to that and yeah so this is a step towards because some people would say this is one person's view, version of society mm. There is basically like, say, like a like a a liberal uh, leaning gender neutral Mm. um, outlook is now pushing an agenda to a society where there's a lot of people that would say, you know, this is like the Trumpism thing where they would say, wait a second, like we kind of like the way it was before where everybody had a defined role and et cetera, et cetera. I'm I'm literally not speaking for myself. I'm saying what other people might say in response to this. They would push back on this because they would say, wait a second, that's not my vision of sort of like a, a better future. Now, what I find interesting is, like, is there more people that think like us that go, yeah, of course we should have the, the, the woman as the, the mathematician or little girl becoming a mathematician. And people should be able to do what they want on the spectrum and not be nudged a certain way. But I think there's going to be a certain segment that go, you're imposing your ideals and your view of society on us as a whole. This has kind of the, been the issue all along with the way voting rights have gone and Brexit and, and obviously the election in the states and this sort of conservative movement in Canada as well.
2: Yeah, I I'd
0: bet that the reason for
2: the law has more to do with mental health than anything else. Because I think, like, when when we're talking about, yeah, how gender norms are enforced or, like, body, like, uh, the way bodies are presented.
0: The sort of uh, societal consensus of yeah. what is
2: beautiful, what is not. Yeah, and this is why we need to step in, is that because, like, we don't trust advertisers uh, to do the... the
0: to do the right thing. Really. Yeah. Like and the societal I, consensus is harmful.
2: Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote this book, um, Coddling of the American Mind, he's talked a lot about how, yeah, rates of depression and suicide for young girls, like age, you know, 12 to 17, are way higher than they ever ever been. And that, I think, in part has to do with advertising, but also social media too. And this is actually, the next thing I've been thinking about, is just like, okay, how, how if we want to, Make sure that sort of like the best values are being presented to young people. Like how do you moderate like YouTubers or influencers and stuff? Because that's this whole other marketplace that's completely unregulated. Sure. Right now they're able to kind of get their hands over the big agency marketing companies. But there's this whole other set of influencers that also
0: have a huge uh, voice. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, too, like, when I asked, like, you know, Nature Nurture earlier, like, I think, like, you talked about advertisers and the way they present sort of life, and then we sort of follow what we we, we think. Oh, that's life. It's like, actually, that's not life, but that's an advertiser's presentation of what it is. This, this kind of goes back to... 30s, 40s, 50s. It's kind of insidious like Easy Bake Oven and 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 it's a girl and it's like the boy has the rocket launching ship and all that stuff. Th- that's like advertisers selling and sort of it becoming this inherent thing over 60 years. Well because that's years. how
1: life was at the time. It was most of the men went to work and most of the women stayed home and they were homemakers. So advertising so reflected the pre- society. It was preparing them for what they were likely to do.
0: Right. Right, and then I guess as things change and evolve, like you know what I mean, like obviously the the, the, re, the sexual revolution in the '60s and sort of like liberation and women's rights, as that stuff started changing, that obviously shook people who had been used to living a certain way, like all the way from, you know, like, I mean, the twenties were pretty roaring, but mm. then things started to settle down after the war and become very conservative and buttoned down. And, and I guess the question is like, do advertisers reflect the people or are they, are they influencing the people? Like, is it a mirror or is it, uh, like, a?
1: Oh, I think the advertisers are seeing that the times are changing and they're trying to hop on board. Like this seems very late. Uh, like, cause it seems like commercials and are already headed this way. Right. And if you take one step out of line, even if your intentions are good, you're fucked. Like, look at that Pepsi commercial or that Gillette commercial, which tried its hardest to really be like, "Because I'm a man," it still got ripped apart. And that was trying to be like as positive as possible. Yeah. So it it doesn't matter if you try or not. If you do a commercial where like Kate, what's the name? Girl with the big jugs, name? Kate Upton. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say boobies. Uh, but if if Kate Upton's dancing around in a uh, commercial. <laughs> Eating a cheeseburger, she she's probably going to get ripped apart once it gets on the internet, and they're going to have to disable the comment section. So right. I think this
2: law is just like following
1: suit with how society is going. I don't think they're like paving new roads or anything. Uh,
2: there's a so one of the commercials in question right now um, that might be taken down is a Philadelphia cheese ad. Basically, there's um, I think a, a really dopey dude in the kitchen trying to. The ad in question shows two first-time fathers who get so distracted by eating cheese that their babies end up on a conveyor belt of the Philadelphia on toast. A full 32 complaints have been made about the scandalous and grossly unfair portrayal of ma- male ineptitude. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, the Brits are just being funny right now and being sarcastic with complaining about it. But yeah, it does lead to the question. It's like what, yeah, what will be banned or what, what people will complain
0: about and then what will have to be taken off the air. And that's the subjective part. Well, that's it. And it's just like, I guess all society really is, is it's kind of like a consent. It's like majority rules. That's what that's what elections are. That is like sort of how we decide what we're going to do as a society. Why we're in such an interesting time right now is because there's kind of two opposing forces. And I don't know if it's 50 50. It's like kind of like this sort of like things have been going a certain way for the last decade, which is like enlightenment sort of human rights uh you know being kind fellow man and then there's this sort of been this pushback with trump being elected that is kind of this pushback that goes you know obviously make america great again you know what it was like before let's get back to that when a man was a man and a woman was a woman and everything was easy and simple and defined so it's like you have these two sort of forces sort of trying to be going no let's like let's ascend to this utopian sort of society where we accept everybody well and then you have this other sort of group saying no 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 like what was wrong with the way it was before and i'm very fascinated to see where it's going to net out like i don't know if this pushback is temporary and then we continue ascending to sort of like this this commonality and realizing we have more uh, in common than than we our differences or if it's actually this wave of sort of pushback will actually push everything back to the way it was where it's like know your place like let's call you know let's not tiptoe around things it's like stereotypes exist for a reason and we're just going to accept it and let's not lie about the reality of situations i don't know what side's going to to to, to sort of net out and win
1: do you feel like you uh give into stereotypes or anything or like growing up you
0: watch commercials and we're like i'm gonna play with trucks now or something <laughs> i didn't i didn't have a truck collection but i i i i think we're all susceptible to stereotypes and what we sort of see and what we're taught and like the sort of um the environment we grew up in but then it's like is it on us to sort of you know everyone uses that word woke and a lot of times in sort of a derogatory way but like is it on us to sort of ascend from that have critical thought have independent thought like whether you grew up with religion in your life or maybe thinking that uh, you know a certain way of life that the way that other people live is wrong or whatever it's like how do you sort of break out of that and have it form your own views and sort of a more like I'm, I'm a humanist man like so even if I have stereotypical thoughts where I go Ooh, like that group of people seem to act a certain way. I try to shake that thought and go, okay, why did I think that? Is it true? What's even the evidence that it's true? Was it like something in a movie I saw once that informs the way that I think? I don't know. I try to sort of like think my way through all of that stuff if I have like a a knee-jerk reaction. That's how I approach it. Where do you find you, Neto?
1: Well, for me, I feel like growing up I always was given cars and trucks as gifts, always given tools as gifts. My dad was obsessed with the Maple Leafs, the Blue Jays, and I hate all of those things. Like, I I never wanted to drive a car. I never wanted to be handyman. I never never wanted to learn how to ice skate. Still haven't. Uh, Baseball, I hated. And I just kind of went my own way and got into basketball and comedy. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. Like, I'm very – I don't like stereotypes because they – it's really embarrassing for me when my wife's driving me around everywhere. Cause I, <laughs> and everyone's like, well, the man should be driving, you know, but you know, or when my wife mows the lawn for me or something like that, because I just want to sit on the couch and eat bonbons and watch reality TV. So <laughs> I'm bonbons. <laughs> that's a married with children uh, <laughs> reference, but I'm, I'm honestly, it's, it, it, it really is embarrassing for me because I am the least like, I'm going to,
2: Though I would say birds the things and, that you're into are also very very male dominated things. You're into comedy, which is way more male focused. And I wonder is like is there a, like why this is just a question like why are more males just statistically speaking interested in comedy? Well, and is that is that, is that is there something with the male disposition that is attracted to that, or is that a society thing that's been enforced? Like I don't know.
1: Well, there's a certain theory that everything we do is to uh, get. Uh, sex. <laughs> so, and, and you're 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 uh, really yeah, are. You're told, about a revolu- uh, maybe that could be an influential thing, thing because not, not everyone always told you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about the revolution, baby. <laughs> no, I mean,
0: he, he means evolutionary, meaning like attracting mates, is what you're saying, like, yeah. right? Well, well, everyone says like, oh, a
1: girl likes a funny guy. If you make her laugh, she'll love you. Someone it? said that to him when he was nine, yeah. and then he went into a
0: room like a beautiful mind and started putting together <laughs> comedy and all that. No, but but I know what
1: you mean. But that's what every uh, guy is told. So maybe I was influenced that way, and then I just rejected all the other things that I knew I was maybe not going to be good at.
2: Mm. I have a hard time. Um, do you guys ever? Uh, do you have any like nieces or anything like that? Like like because I have a eleven year old and a seven year old niece. And I oh and I, anytime they're they're dressed up for some occasion, I kind of like oh you look pretty. But then I'm like no, I can't say
0: that. Do you guys do you guys tell young girls they look pretty? No, I wouldn't comment on appearance. Yeah.
1: I say you look hot. (laughs) 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 But see, and then it gets a laugh, and I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't get a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) The girl guides are walking by, and Shane's like, "Hot, hot." (laughs) (laughs) You say, "Hot, not." (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. Uh, what's please. the next topic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Geez
0: Louise. Uh the next topic is Was uh, that coherent at all? I I don't know. I mean, turned I I out, man. <laughs> that was for the listeners. <laughs> the listeners will be able to tell us. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's know what you think. Yeah. Uh, okay, we started heavy, so let's move on to uh, a story out of The Hollywood Reporter about, there's a film out right now called Men in Black International starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. Uh, it is obviously a reboot of the very popular Men in Black series with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. There was three of those films uh, from back in the day. Uh, the reason this story is interesting is because this movie came out, it was, a huge flop slash failure. When did it come out? I don't even know. See, that's that's a failure of uh, marketing and advertising. Uh, I think like two, last week, maybe?
1: What? I yeah. had
0: no idea it was out. And yeah. I'm a huge Man of Black fan. Well, here's the thing. And the advertising was all over the NBA playoffs. They would have, like Chris Paul would have eyes in the back of his head because he's a great passer, like as a point yeah. guard. Um, but So it was like he was an alien. Or Anthony Davis was an alien. Did you guys not see any of these commercials? No. Nope. So anyway, they, they were advertising the shit out of it. Uh, nobody went and saw this film. I'm sure for a million different reasons. Like, they're trying to sort of dissect why. But why this story is interesting is basically they they have this story saying like what went wrong, the rewrites, and sort of the infighting. So. I'll quickly break this down. Uh, there was like, there's two producers this producing team. One of them is like a Steven Spielberg confidant uh, and then you have the director. Um, I think it's F. Gary, 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 Gary. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he's the guy that did Straight Outta Compton uh, and then you have the two stars, obviously Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson and they have this script that they think is like great. Everybody's excited about it. The actors get involved because this script is great. They get the money from Sony. They decide to go ahead and reboot this Film. The two producers were doing rewrites as the film was going. So they have their script. They go into shooting. And I guess as the film's unfolding, and you never really want to make anything this way. They're changing things. They're sort of changing different things. Apparently the original script was going to be a little bit more topical. It was going to So the be, producers are rewriting stuff. Yes. Not the director. No, but the director wouldn't write it anyways. You'd have writers, but the producers, I guess, were in on the original script. So they felt a, a certain amount of ownership. Um, and the, uh, the original script, I guess, also was a little bit more topical and relevant, meaning it was going to sort of be a commentary on immigration, because obviously you have these um, aliens coming in from all around the sure. galaxy to Earth, and uh, the men in black sort of police this. Uh, so that element, I guess, gets stripped away. I haven't seen the film, so so I don't quite know. Um, and then they were changing sort of the script constantly. So then Chris Hemsworth, Tess Thompson, the, the, the stars, they bring in their own dialogue writers because mm. I guess they're not feeling what the new dialogue is. They're like, well, we had this one script. Now we have this other script. I guess the director is fighting hard with the producers. It's this big expose about why it all went wrong. And Sony, who's paying for this, uh, I guess they were absentee. Usually the studio would come in and say, okay, listen, either the producers are in charge or – the director's in charge, and that's the person who has the last say. But I guess they kind of stayed out of the whole thing. Mm. So I, I read this whole sort of piece about why everything went wrong. And by the way, whenever a film of this magnitude that costs this much money doesn't deliver, there's always going to be some blaming and finger-pointing. Yeah. The producers, this producing team, which was interesting, so at the end of the article, they're like, update 435. It's them basically defending themselves. Like They're like this, this uh, journalist from the Hollywood Reporter didn't even reach out to us for comment. Whenever a film like this happens, there's always it's always going to be collaborative. And there's a million, as a producer, there's a million different sort of competing interests that need to like be um, looked after. Yeah. So if it's, like, if, if it's like certain money people that are financing the film, it's like Sony, and then I guess there was an, an, a couple other companies. It's like they have certain concerns about a script. Well, we actually have to go in and we have to address that as producers. And anyway, they sort of defended themselves The reason I bring this story up, and that was a long uh, sort of explanation of why we're talking about this, is can you make good creative things when there's too many cooks? We're talking about like sort of like collaboration in creative on a large scale, and do things tend to sort of fall apart? I think making a movie is hard anyway, but whenever you hear stuff like this, you're just like, this is a mess. Well, there's a movie like American History
1: X that was just littered with problems. The director and the studio conflicted the entire way, so much so... That the director took his name off it and then wanted to re- have it replaced with Alan Smithy, which has become like a popular. It's
0: the famous, yeah. Who's the director of it. that movie? Oh
1: geez, I forget his name Whatever. right now. Uh, That's the Pejeden. Ed Norton movie, though, right? Yes, yeah. and uh, but that movie turned out great. Like that movie's like very effective and, and amazing. And then uh, there's a movie like uh, Apocalypse Now, where uh, what's his name? Francis Ford Coppola just went with his own guns and like took like five years to make went over it over budget. And again, yeah. it ended up turning out amazing and then there's other movies where it just ends up horribly. So it's kind of a crapshoot
0: no matter which way you look at it. Here's how I feel. I think you just need a singular vision. So if it's Francis Ford Coppola being insane on uh, Apocalypse Now, at least he he's driving the car. The problem is, is when nobody knows who the boss is and maybe you find this, I don't know, in music collaboration, mm-hmm. Max. But like, it's like you ha- like there's that famous si- uh, saying compromise killed the band if yeah. everybody has a voice you, you end up coming up with something mediocre it's but like- there's
1: also another saying called teamwork
2: makes the dream
0: work." yeah that's my favorite yeah yeah so
2: um i was listening to this podcast um it's kind of adam grant who is an expert in like organizational behavior he was on sam harris podcast the other day and he has his own show as well really smart interesting enlightened dude and he was saying, Sam Harris asked him, was "Like, what what is what, what is like the main problem when you go talk to a business or an organization that they deal with? Like, what's what's like the first flag you see?" And he says, "It's when they give a group of people a task to do when it'd be better served for one person to figure it out." Mm. And I, I was like, oh, that's such an interesting insight when you have too many people in charge of making a decision when it's better, just one person does it or, or the inverse of that too. It's like sometimes you give one person a du- duty when actually you need 10 people to figure that thing out. So kind of figuring out what issues are best solved by either a singular vision or a group. And I, and I think, and when it, so when it comes to any kind of decision making, it's like you kind of have to ask yourself, it's like, is there too many cooks in the kitchen or do we need more voices? Because I think, for instance, like if you're making a record, um, you'll see a lot of records that flop because like the the songwriter or the band goes, "No, this is our vision," and the label's like, uh, "Can we can we give you some notes, or maybe you could work with this other producer, or maybe we could try some co-writes?" And the band goes, "No, this is our vision." And in 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 instances where it fails, it's like the band clearly should have asked for more voices, should have had more yeah. opinions. But then sometimes. It's like no, no. The, the band or the director, uh, whoever, like actually knows exactly what they want and ends up doing it perfectly. Like, you know, I talked about this uh, Billy Eilish example, yeah. where Billy on on a previous episode, where Billy Eilish and her brother refused any outside help and they end up making a transcendent record. And uh, it's like be- Pet Sounds with the Beach Boys. Yeah, right? because it was like yeah, Brian Wilson's vision. So it's like that is the question, though. It's like when do you? get notes how do you get notes you
1: never know till it's amazing or it's a piece of shit well that, I think the there's thing. something
0: to that too and it, in it,
1: hindsight you always see it, it perfectly yeah right? it, yeah. So. no
0: but here's the question though it's because in order to make anything usually unless yeah. it is you're making a record in your basement or something specifically to make a, especially to make a movie someone has to pay for it so the question is, sure. how I mean, much and movies are
2: different than uh, making a record? But no, but so a record can matter too, though. No, but the, but the money involved makes it different because sure. I think that I think that's what makes movies different. And the movies way more collaborative. I movies thought. movies are are way more collaborative, and the budgets are so much bigger. It but can the, be.
0: but so movies are super super collaborative. But like when Quentin Tarantino makes a movie, I guarantee you nobody tells Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. He gets the final say, mm-hmm. but I bet you a lot of people are paying for that movie that aren't Quentin. My question is, when you're paying for something, whether you're the record label mm-hmm. paying for Billie Eilish's record with her brother and all that studio time, and they're, they're you know building a, a safe place for them to create something great, or you're you're handing over a film like a you know a hundred million dollar film to a director or producers, it's like. When, how much say do the money people get in the overall product or is the whole part of being like a patron or being like I'm investing in the arts to be like, here's the bag of money. Come back with what you come back with. Well, the thing is these guys that
2: are investors go, you know, do you know other projects I've been involved with? It's like <laughs> the reason why I'm so fucking successful is that like I was the person who made the little tweak in the notebook or I was the person exactly. did the little tweet and whatever Shawshank Redemption. I I have the magic touch. I know how to read a fucking script. And that's why they pay me the big bucks. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. So but that's
0: what I mean. They want to be the creatives. Yeah. And so at what point do they step away, or is it is it helpful? You and gotta
1: they- work it out beforehand. That's the thing. You're like, I'm the money guy, I'm gonna be giving you notes, or there's a thing called Final Cut, where the director just gets to supersede any notes and just do whatever they want. There's like, you know, twenty directors in the industry who have that, like P it's T Anderson, Quentin Tarantino.
0: Spielberg. Speaking of Final Cut, Ben and Black International had two versions. They had a version that the producers wanted and the, that direct, the version that the director mm-hmm. wanted. They tested them both. And the one that is now out is the producer's version. The producer's
2: version. Interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: I heard stories like this are funny enough about Iron Man, where every day they had to kind of like have a script doctor come in and basically start with a blank page, fuck around with the script, and then have Robert Downey Jr. make up his own lines. And it turned out amazing.
0: Yeah. Really, sometimes sometimes it can work with chaos, but I think more often than not it doesn't. You know, I mean, there's a million movies that get made every year that no one's ever even heard of. Like, you know,
1: depends. Like Judd Apatow films, like he tends to not have like a hard and fast script, and it's very collaborative, and yep. people tend to like
2: those, and they tend to make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess the issue with this particular movie, it felt kind of chaotic, where it's like if you're going to a movie with Judd Apatow or even uh, Tarantino, I was listening to a podcast with somebody who had been in a Tarantino m- or a Scorsese movie. It was Scorsese. Who was it? Oh, it was Adam Grant. No, Adam um, – who's the dude in Parks and Rec? Oh, uh, Adam Scott. Adam Scott. He was on Bill Simmons' podcast the other day. And, and Simmons was asking, like, what makes Apatow good? What makes Scorsese good? And he said, oh, Scorsese is actually very collaborative. He, he really wants uh, your input. The same thing with Apatow. It's very, like, team-oriented. Um, but – I guess it really depends on like the what the issue with this movie it was that shit was happening in the moment where people didn't know what protocol was. Yeah. I think it's, it's yes. It's like if you know that like this is this is how we do it, whether it's like it's my way or the highway or everybody gets a seat at the table, whatever it is, people need structure. And when things are happening in a mm-hmm. chaotic way, in the moment,
0: that's I think when things can get fucked up.
2: Right. But you're right though, Shane. And um is that Yeah, retrospect is so easy to rewrite. You
0: reverse engineer the narrative, depending on how it turns out. Have
2: you guys
1: ever seen the clip of David O. Russell on the set of I Heart Huckabee's losing his shit? Uh, I've heard about it. Would it remind me? well he's just like uh lily tomlin's like giving him a little bit of attitude or something he's like you fucking cunt this is my whole life you bitch and he knocks everything off the desk and like it almost hits jason schwartzman and then there's another scene where lily tomlin's in a car with dustin hoffman and lily's like you fucking son of a bitch i fucking hate you and dustin hoffman's just like calm down calm down (laughs) is is she just
2: mimicking the director
1: no, she's just—they're both volatile personalities. Oh, th- oh,
2: this was off camera. This, this is these like cameras kept rolling. The
1: cameras rolling. They're supposed to be starting the scene, oh. but it's just <laughs> caught. And then it got released to uh, YouTube. Oh, right. And then I was listening. Uh, Lily said she'd work with him in a heartbeat because he's such an amazing director. Again. So oh wow. We're still friends. And he famously got punched in the face by. Uh, George Clooney, David Russell, did on the set of Three Kings. (laughs) That's awesome. And then I was listening to Dax Shepard talk about he was like uh, watching him work behind the scenes on the set. And how he works is while you're moving around, like on the set of Silver Linings playbook, uh, Bradley Cooper's walking around. He needs to touch a book. He's like, no, Bradley, touch that book. No, sit down. Get up. Say this line. Say this. And he'll talk almost the entire time even while you're doing your dialogue, and then they'll like ADR and replace it and shit. So he works in complete chaos, but since the movies turn out so well, minus I Heart Huckabee's, Mm -hmm. which did not, that people are willing to tolerate it. So it all depends on your reputation, and I think the odds of the end product turning out well. And I think because Men in Black is considered such a juggernaut, they're like, fuck, this, this is going to do gangbusters regardless. It doesn't even – who cares how good it is? Yeah,
2: but I think because the industry is so volatile and you have to keep producing, like he's a rarity where he can be an asshole and keep getting the business. I don't know about
0: this day and age, man. Working conditions are changing, man. No, no,
2: I know. That's what I'm saying. But but I feel like um, like any job, a, a director has to be charming and easy to work with and, and has to be like the ambassador for the movie to a degree, you know? And so – I feel and, and you and you see a lot of successful directors that are just like, oh, like uh, Linklater. He's like he seemed like a laid back dude. Like a lot of guys are, I think, really great at collaborating. Well, here's the thing, and that's how they keep getting the work but and getting the best out of their actors too.
0: So there's this sort of thought that like for years we've always put up with volatile genius, whether yeah. whatever it is. If you're in finance, if you're at, I don't care if you work at like wherever you work. People put up with the volatile genius because they go, well, the work justifies maybe, like, the, uh, the verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. We've entered an era now, like, and I felt like this happened with the Magic Johnson story when, you know, there was that big hit piece on ESPN about how Magic basically was a tyrant to, to some employees. Some people look at that story and they go, was Magic a tyrant or was he just a tough boss? Have employees become too sensitive? So I'm wondering, as we move forward, is sort of like the age of a really difficult, demanding, volatile, say, boss – is that even acceptable anymore or is that like an HR issue? Like does everybody have to, to operate at a certain level now including a David O'Russell, Russell before – and now people are like, no, 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 no. That shit doesn't fly anymore. I think that the – I was listening to Conan
2: talk about this like exact issue. It's like you don't – I don't think you – I think being a good boss means that like you're firm but fair and – and I think, even though we're like living in, a, in an era where like millennials are sensitive or whatever, I still think people respect a boss that's that's firm, as long as they're they're fair and like a leader of people, right? Like I think I think those are the qualities that.
1: Yeah, it's hard to command respect when you're like demanding respect. You know yeah,
2: I mean? or when you're just like flat out an asshole. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Some people it works for fear-based. For me, it does not.
0: No, not at all. Do you, Do you think bosses in any inf- Do you think they can yell at employees still? Or do you think that's like, it just can't happen? I don't think you can. No, you can't. Which I think is, and this gets almost brings us back to the, the sort of mental health thing about society. This is a good place to ascend to ultimately. Mm-hmm. But think mean, there's certain people that go, no one has any discipline anymore. Kids are soft. You can't even yell at an employee. You know, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see that point of view. Because I'm like, actually, we're getting to a better place yeah. by sort of changing the rules, you know. But for the old guard... They can't understand it. It's like, wait a second. I own a car wash and I can't yell at the guy washing the car anymore. It's mm-hmm. like, well, no, not really. And it's like, well, I fucking own it.
2: Yeah. And I, you'd probably just say, well, that guy's maybe not the best boss because there's better ways to get work out of your employees. Sure. Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah, let's, let's mm-hmm. keep going.
1: All right. Well, I, I was going to ask yeah, about – jump in.
2: Just because it kind of relates to uh, both. But there was
1: a time <laughs> where you had to direct a commercial yeah. where it was like a sexy guy – Sexy guy's been mentioned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Turn on the sexy Get guy. The <laughs> guy sexy guy comes. Shirts off, yeah. boys. <laughs> the the. It seems like the fire alarm is going off here where we're recording at E1 right now. What's going on? Is this like a? F- have you ever been through a fire drill never here?
2: Never have. It's I wonder.
0: This has to be a fire drill. Yeah. F- fuck. Do how- we do we cut and come back? What, how, is this how, a how,
2: to be continued
0: episode? What happens here? Fire Joe. How, how, how deep into the pot are we? We're at 47, and we, we never hit the Danny Green thing. Man, uh, dear listeners, you've never heard this. People are starting to file out of this building right now. A bunch of people have, are coming out of offices. Everyone's kind of giggling. Oh, actually, people are dancing now. This is very weird. You know what, guys? That's the end of the episode. Oh,
2: Let's see what the announcement is.
0: Uh,
1: people love fire alarms, though, it Attention. Eh? Attention. 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 Fire alarm system has been activated. Evacuate the building using nearest exit. Elevators are out of service.